0: In some news uh, near and dear to uh, Jeremy and I's heart. Um, so, you know, New Orleans, right? A, a city that Jeremy and I, um, you know, are, are, are from that area. Jeremy lived there for a very long time. It's a city near and dear to our heart. I wrote about New Orleans in my book as like a, a case study of the smart city, right? Where it's like, if you want to actually understand how the smart city is rolling out, look at New Orleans because it's got all this privatized policing it's got all this surveillance technology and it's all about like you know they they got palantir there um they got a fucking uh you know trash uh millionaire you know this heir to this uh you know rubbish cleaning, garbage cleaning company that just made a fortune cleaning up uh, after hurricanes and then created his own private policing force for the French Quarter. Like, you know, that's the smart city, right? Like the privatized policing surveillance software in a uh, extremely segregated and uh, uh, unequal and unjust city, right? Um, and and as, bi- as a big part of this was that, you know, the New Orleans Police Department, the city council, um, forced through facial recognition, um, despite, you know, uh, protest, uh, uh, by, uh, you know, citizen groups, advocacy groups, despite, um, you know, protests by other city councilors, right? This, the, the mayor, um, uh, along with the, uh, police department forced through the use of facial recognition saying you know we need this for you know new orleans is a famously uh you know crime ridden and unsafe city and this is what's going to finally you know give the police another powerful tool in their arsenal to crack down right well jeremy jeremy you shared you shared this in our, our chat uh, our group chat recently some local news uh, from new orleans that reporting what that you know after, after nearly a year of the New Orleans Police Department using facial recognition, uh, it's led to uh, precisely zero <laughs> arrest. Um, uh, you know, it, it's been useful precisely zero times.
1: Well, it just goes to show the, the people that sell this stuff to cities, how full of shit they are. Uh, and then wanting to use a city like New Orleans as like a training you know, I think you've even we've talked about this before. How Palantir needs places like New Orleans to be able to train their facial recognition cameras because famously they can't detect uh, black faces or brown faces or anything other than white-presenting folks. And so New Orleans is a, a perfect opportunity for that, given the the population makeup of the city. And I just laugh. I have just belly laughs thinking about how much trouble the city council, you know, cause back in 2020 they try, they, they voted to, to not allow it to happen, but then they lied about it and did it anyway. And then last November they voted on it and it went through, but in 2020 it was because there was so much upheaval from the community that they didn't do it, but they still went, went through it anyway and lied to the people and say they did it. So it was just, it's one of those situations. There's uh, someone that I follow on Instagram. It's EOS, and it's a, a like a citizen group that basically advocates against surveillance. They've been following this, and they'll continue to follow this. So if you have any interest, check them out. That's where I'm getting most of my information about this.
0: Yeah, Eyes on Surveillance is the is the full name of the group Eyes on Surveillance. But yeah, they, uh, I'll, I'll read a little bit from this uh, this piece in Verite News, um, where they write, uh, New Orleans' vast network of crime cameras was born under former Mayor Mitch Landrieu, who in twenty seventeen uh, in twenty seventeen and has progressed r- progressed rapidly under Mayor Latoya Cantrell. The city's surveillance hub called the real time crime center has now has access to more than a thousand live camera feeds around the clock seven days a week about half of those come from city owned cameras and half from private residents and businesses who pay to give the city direct access to their camera live feeds Um, and we don't know for sure it doesn't say but I suspect a lot of those are like ring cameras right on like you know businesses or residents um, that are like you know what pay to give the the police direct access right which is it also goes into this whole thing that like the police as this occupying force um you know keeping a close t- uh, tab on the city you know with their real-time crime center but also the way that they have created these these real bonds um with uh you know largely white wealthy residents in the ci- in, in the city to say that like you know, it's it's us versus them, right? It's it's the police and it's the white wealthy residents um up against a uh, a, a, a city filled with um you know poor black uh, criminals. You know, that's the which is exactly why people would pay to give the police department access to their their camera feeds so that they can then do things like keep an, an eye on them but also run facial recognition and and other forms of software like palantir and whatnot um on these uh camera feeds and let's underline again it all amounted to bupkis nothing no 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 arrest not for lack of trying right no arrest no positive usage of it at all um it this is like so part and parcel of these technologies where you're exactly right jeremy where it's like you've you've got usually private companies, um, private entrepreneurs uh, who, you know, whatever, like pushing their 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 technologies, their solutions, selling this stuff, selling it on a, a bunch of dreams of what all the outcomes and all the powers it's going to grant um, the city. And at the end of the day, uh, the shit don't even work itself.
2: It's also kind of spectacular to look at the numbers, right? 15 requests in a nine-month period for 14 black men, one black woman uh, you have a request that was cancelled because the suspect was identified through other means and not through the facial recognition um, or facial or, you know facial surveillance. You have another where it was denied because it violated the the, the police department's policy which said that they were only going to use it for violent crime or to find missing persons. Then in the 13 remaining cases, facial recognition only provided a match in five of them. And one of those five, they arrest someone different than the one identified through the facial recognition. And they say that quote, lead may have been bad information. Matches subject was not in area during the homicide, right? So the facial recognition directed them to someone who was not in the area. And then the last two cases, right. Are, ones that are still open. So no arrests at all, right? At all. But as you pointed out and as you talked about, you know, we can look at the breakdown of it. Half of the, res- uh, the requests are coming from specialized NOPD offices, as the article points out, right, that are focused on Homicide Division on the FBI and NOPD Joint Task Force. And then the other half are in the 8th District, which covers the French Quarter, which, as you talked about, has been seeing an increase in the privatization of policing over there, right, uh, and in the roving of these corporate and private militias and armed security forces right? And then there was uh, an identity fraud case that came from the fourth district, which covers the bank. So, you know, what we're seeing here is that like, you know, facial recognition ban got overturned years ago because they were saying that, oh, well, like, you know, violent crime is going up. We need to be able to, you know, fight against it. We need to be able to keep the community safe. Violent crime went down, right? Um, On a side note, and the facial recognition uh technology didn't even yield a single arrest and even if it had yielded a single arrest it's not even that's not even an argument for it because in this sample you have requests that violated the policy you have requests that got the wrong person right you have requests that had bad information right and you had requests that have still not yielded anything right so it's just we can look at it on the one, qu- on the uh, I th- there are a few ways to look at it, right? There's the question of bias, which is like they're only using it for black men and women. There's the question of it- efficacy, right, which is that it's not working. These are two things that could be ostensibly fixed, right, in the sense that you know, I-, I think you know, some ethicists and some surveillance, you know, critics have talked about the fact that yeah, like you know, you can figure out at some day maybe to purge the bias and maybe to create colorblind or race neutral systems that do target people. But then that leads us to the other reason to oppose it, right? Which is that like how much of the civil liberty framework was preemptively scaled back to justify this egregious intrusion into people's public spaces. And then to find out that it doesn't work, what are their arguments going to be now? the arguments are going to be now the the thing that you know oh we can we we can fix it and it will be more effective and it will be less racist ignoring the the serious egregious civil liberty violation that occurs by just introducing corporate private and private surveillance of people into public spaces
0: no that's exactly right the the solution is all is more money (laughs) you know Mm -hmm. uh if the surveillance ain't working it's because you need more of it ed You, you you just need more of it
2: We need a bigger budget. We need a bigger fusion center. We need more people looking over the data. We need to bring in consultants to to de-bias the data. We need to bring in larger and larger training data sets for these algorithms to work better. We need to maybe contract with more expensive vendors. We need to figure out how much more money we can pour. To power this system that we've now breached the hall with,
0: we we need more diversity, equity, and inclusion in the right. the New Orleans Police Department's surveillance system.
2: The Rainbow Surveillance Coalition, you know. <laughs> <laughs>
1: There's an old abandoned building in the CBD in New Orleans right now. It's a high rise. It's been sitting empty for years. And there's debris that falls off of it routinely enough that they have netting around the base of it. So if you're walking under the building, you don't catch a stray piece of the building. Mm -hmm. Just turn that shit into the eye of Sauron. We've already talked about it before. (laughs) It's ethical.
0: The eye of Sauron is ethical. We know this. Yeah. (laughs) Right this also perfectly brings us to the other argument against this which is the the you know the economic argument here as well right where like yeah all of this is it's it you know it, it's wrong on every level, right? It's technically wrong in the sense that techni- technologically does not work. It's not. It's organizationally wrong in the sense that it's not. It's not effective at the job it's meant to do, even if that job is completely unjust, right? It is uh you know wrong at a, a social level because of the the civil rights um, violations. It's also wrong at a more kind of public and economic level as well because there's a lot of fucking money being funneled. In into creating, maintaining, and expanding these uh, surveillance systems by a city uh, that is famously under-resourced, underfunded, always living on uh, you know a knife's edge, um, and in a city that is uh, massively, massively underserved in terms of housing, education, jobs. You got kids that are hungry right like food right like underserved in terms of access to food uh you know basic services um all things that you know uh maybe would actually really improve the social fabric in a major way if instead of pumping millions of dollars into these surveillance systems it was pumped into a uh, uh, it's let's say, uh, knocking down an abandoned building that's shedding debris onto the sidewalk to such a degree that people might catch a stray rebar to the head or something, you know, like... Maybe you knock that down and turn it into a big community center uh, with, a, with an unhoused shelter and, and, and a food bank, right? Or something like that. Uh, rather, uh, and, and it will probably cost you less uh, than the surveillance system, the, the contracts with private policing forces. Um, and it would absolutely contribute a lot more to actually making the city a, a, a safer uh, place you know but but again that, that's cuz that's it's not the point the point is not to have a system um that is effective right the point is to have uh, a system that gives you the theater of efficacy um that, that it gives you the the justification for power and for the expansion of that power right like the point is not ever actually to do anything like make the city safer or improve the the social fabric or the the community sh- bonds of the city or whatever it might be right just a, a, I think a real a real uh, amazing case in point here that New Orleans once again uh, is is where where you should look to actually understand the smart city in all its real glory um, New New Orleans is 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 the is the smart city in action
2: we test things out in the in the empire and then we bring them back to the homeland but sometimes you know we have laboratories in the homeland um disaster zones sacrifice zones uh places like new orleans are perfect test kits laboratories for frontier of military grade tech civil liberty bifurcation or um you know, avoiding civil liberties entirely, or of testing out the rhetoric and testing out the coalitions and testing out responses and, test, and and testing out all the things that you will need to roll these things out later as part of like this this large nebulous attempt to erode a lot of the things that people insist that right wingers and conservatives and people on you know on the on the right trying to build this alternative modernity insist. We need to get rid of if we want law and order again or if we want more rational human beings or if we want more orderly technological progress and so on and so forth.
1: I mean we talked about this at length in the episode we did with Chris Gilliard right. like a couple of years ago. Right. About how, you know, certain communities have shit tested on them so it can be sold later is you know luxury surveillance and i imagine a lot of those folks that live in the garden district and se- certain other uh, neighborhoods that want to do everything they can to limit like the people coming into their neighborhoods that are not welcome because the thing is with new orleans is everybody's on top of each other there's no bad neighborhoods you can be four million dollar houses on one block and the next block you've got run down shotgun houses so it's just you know Everything, it's like a highly variable place, but you're getting what Jathan was saying. It's all by design. It's all by design in a place like Louisiana because Louisiana has a, a, has a reputation for Angola penitentiary. And Angola penitentiary is one of those places where a lot of, a lot of uh, phone bank, a lot of work is outsourced. They have a fucking rodeo that they force inmates to participate in and they don't get any compensation for that but the prison gets all the money from it every big penitentiary in the south was it was was placed there by design because at one time it was a it was a plantation every single major penitentiary in the deep south at one time or another was a plantation so you know what the prisoners are going to be doing out there and you know what most of the prisoners are going to be doing out there and then places like Mississippi, if you have a if you have a felony record, you lose your ability to vote for the rest of your life. Numerous times to try to overthrow that in the Supreme Court. I don't know if it's done that yet. I don't know if it ever will, but stuff like that is by design in places like that, because you get free to free to cheap labor with your prison population down there. And as long as there's they're funneling money into the police department to arrest people for shit, there's always gonna be an unlimited supply of free to cheap labor. And the capitalists eat that shit up. Mm.
0: Well, the the South is is absolutely the the place where you know, as KRS One points out, the the blur between officer and overseer uh, is at, is at its most overlap. Um, that 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 has never gone away. That's that's a hundred percent for sure.
1: That's the sound of the police. That's the sound of the police That's the sound of the police. That's the yes. sound of the beast. That's the sound of the police. That's the sound of the bees. That's the sound of the police. That's a sound. That the
0: hello friends and enemies it's episode 276 of this machine kills i'm jathan joined by ed and producer jeremy as always ooh, that number 276 we are getting up there uh we, we we're, we're getting old we've been around a long time we we have uh i think we have just reached our our three year anniversary of tmk wow
1: <laughs> fucking wild to me just this week yeah because i just got
0: the uh the soundcloud yearly subscription um email telling me that we'd been renewed again (laughs) i was like damn it's been three years
2: (laughs) (laughs) that's crazy we've been doing this for three years wow yeah you're right it was just during the pandemic during our shit posting of the pandemic
0: that is what led no, to Tmk. Yeah. It was yeah, yeah. No, was it pandemic
2: was... twenty twenty or twenty twenty one.
0: Twenty twenty, pandemic brain thing. Uh, oh
2: yeah, it was. It was. Oh yeah, that was also not a good year for me. But that was uh, the the podcast was a bright spot.
0: Well, the podcast came out of like uh, you and me at uh, like shit posting to each other on Twitter for like months and months and months during the the first like however many months of the pandemic and then being Mm -hmm. like yo we should do a podcast together
2: (laughs) yeah guys talk to make your internet friends that's right i I can't emphasize enough how many great friends have made and gone to meet in real life off of twitter from just a shared love of shit posting and also other online communities but shit posting in twitter shit posting and
0: hating I mean, yeah, those are the hatred. things that bring people together. Our
2: hatred is pure enough, and it brought us together, brought us, all three of us together. It's been great.
0: That's right. That's right. They say love is the force that transcends all space and time. Hate hate yeah. is as well.
2: <laughs> Maybe I'm going to, I'll make like a cover of uh, Stevie Wonder's Love is in Need of Love Today, and it'll be Hate is in Need of Hate Today. I was just...
1: Shit, I could do that. I'll just play it in a minor key and change the
2: words. Yeah, <laughs> oh go. yeah.
0: <laughs> um, all right. Well, let well on, on that three-year note. Then let's go back. Let's let's return to some classic TMK that we haven't touched on in a while. Um, at like least not. I don't know. Like it comes up in different ways, right? I, I'm t- I'm talking, of course, about um, China and its tech sector. I mean, this is a an object of real interest for us on TMK. Something we pay a lot of a- attention to, and i I mean, increasingly more t- attention to it in its like geopolitical context because of the the AI arms race. But you know, um, l- longtime listeners of TMK might remember that some of our earliest uh bits and like long like like running interest were around jack ma's um sudden disappearance in 2020 um as the uh uh uh, the Ant Group um, began to get, you know, as as the uh, Chinese government um, began cracking down on the tech sector, starting with the massive crackdown on Ant Financial and the uh, the, the, the the like months long disappearance of its billionaire um, founder and CEO Jack Ma. That that was uh, we were on Jack Ma watch for for a long time. That's right. Um, but I think it's worth. Uh, returning to China's own tech sector and and the kind of the technology policy that has been unfurling for the last three years in China, um, as the uh, the Chinese state has very seriously been in, in enacting um, antitrust regulations, uh, you know, super tight oversight of the of the tech company or the tech sector and specifically like the really big most powerful private technology companies in China and the and the world. Um, companies like Alibaba, Tencent, Didi, um, Ant Financial, or now they're called the Ant Group. But you know, the these companies have been subjected to a lot of Regulatory intervention and um, state oversight um, over the last three years, as the Chinese state has tried to really get a handle and wrangle in its tech sector, um, and and you know put a strong guiding hand. Not not you know not socialize or nationalize these companies, but put a strong guiding hand on their back. Um, and so there there's been a real there's a really really great piece. In Bloomberg, that breaks down um, what's you know what's been happening and what's coming next um, as as China's tech crackdown begins itself to wind down. You know the the state. It seems as if the Chinese state has kind of achieved a lot of what it wants to in terms of um, reconfiguring the 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 industry um, and kind of giving this guiding direction to these companies um and so i want to go through and go through this bloomberg piece but first um, maybe a little bit of context to help set the scene about like where china's economy is at right now um, you know there's been a lot of reporting and and i think we, and we'll talk about like this you know paul uh, paul krugman article in the um, new york times you know one of an op-ed talking titled why is china's economy stumbling um but there's also some really uh, been some really interesting articles in like the new left review um there's one by ho feng hung um called the zombie economy um which is talking about the chinese economy as this kind of zombie economy um right now and so there's there's been a lot of this kind of Analysis and commentary from both journalists and academics, um, uh, both in the West and in China, um, talking about the kind of Chinese economy as as hitting some stumbling blocks right now. And so, I think that would be some really good context before we get into this um, piece that's really more specifically about the um, the tech policies and interventions. But um, Ed, maybe you want to you want to give us a little bit of. Uh, context here for for china's economy
2: so so china's economy right there two. there's there's the problem therein with china's economy goes back you know a decade right the the focus has been okay what has happened over the past two years over the past two years right we've seen that china has had um You know, large, huge growth that it's been sustaining for decades, um, start to stumble, and you know, part of the reason that it stumbled was because of COVID, right? Initially, was the sense, Um, and a concern that you know, COVID uh, would bring down its economy to a grinding halt. Um, That there were various sectors where there were, you know, lurking bombs of bad debt or. you know, government propping up businesses and, um, monopolies that wouldn't work, but we're, you know, state championed or indigenous, um, you know, champions as the policy was, you know, we talked about this a long time ago with, with Huawei, right? This policy of indigenous, indigenous champion that would help marshal or organize or structure a market inside of the country. And so. You know, over the past few years, uh, up until COVID, you had been seeing this sort of triumphalist, you know, uh, rhetoric or maybe anti-triumphalist. I don't know. In, in triumphalist in the sense that they were basically saying, the gig is up, guys. China's GDP is going to eclipse ours. Their growth is going to eclipse ours. Uh, the size of their economy, the centrality of their economy, the importance of their economy is going to eclipse ours. They're making deals with Saudi Arabia to trade trade. Um, you know, oil in their currency and not in the dollar. They're b- doing the One Belt, One Road Initiative program, this huge infrastructure project that's going to be a geopolitical, uh, that's going to impose a lot of geopolitical roadblocks and frustrate our ability to project power in this or that place, and they're doing it without doing the same sort of austerity programs or debt trap programs that we might have done, right, uh, and that we fear-mongered about for a while. So what's going on? We're concerned, you know, China looks like it's on the up, um, and after COVID locked down the cities, and after, you know, the state tried to marshal a zero-COVID policy, after it tried to marshal some, uh, some emergency spending to stimulate parts of the economy, the expectation was that once zero COVID was abandoned, we would start to see the economy rev back up to double digit GDP growth, right? But that has not been the case. And in fact, what has actually happened is that the economy has begun to slow down. It's it's seeing deflation, right? It's seeing a sort of stagnation or slide backwards, which raises a lot of questions about what's going on. What are the factors that are leading into this? What are the sources of this? Now there are two the two articles that we talked about the the Paul Krugman and the uh, the Fung uh, hung article. Um, both are talking about the same thing but they're doing it I think in different ways and those differences are are, are going are interesting to highlight, right you know Krugman is kind of you know of co- I mean it's a column and he's coming in at the ground floor trying to explain to someone that you know there were a few reasons why China could sustain double digit GDP growth for so many years, right? Part of it, he argues, is that um China's catching up with Western technology, right? And since it's growing, it's able to deploy a lot of capital, right? And but that the richer it has gotten, the the lesser and the less the margins for productivity growth gotten and gains. And so we've been seeing a decline in the ability for it to increase productivity and to increase profits. We've been also seeing demographic shifts where the working age population is is not increasing as much as it might have before, Um, shrinking in some cases in some areas, while the older population is is growing. Um, And so now this has cut forecasts for growth in half. But the roots of these issues go back... Two, about the same period where people were, were hailing and warning that China is going to eclipse us. And so Krugman talks a bit about how there is this problem of, unable, uh, of not being able to incentivize consumption or to increase uh, consumption, right? That China's government has pursued policies that have prevented households from taking large amounts of, of money that or income and spending it in the economy and stimulating it in one way or another, right? And that this is curtailing the ability of GDP to grow. And there are also other factors at play here that he points to. New York Times magazine had a pretty really interesting piece that we might, you know, probably have to dip into at some point, that talks about how the United States has essentially opened an economic war on China. And that what this is amounted to is amounted to is trying to cripple China's ability to access key parts of uh, supply chains. Uh, or of points on supply chains, whether that's metals, whether that's you know, finished products, whether that's information, whether that's talent, um, that would allow it to develop artificial intelligence, or that allow it to develop the frontier of technologies in digital economies and computation in advanced material sciences, along with sanctions that are blocking uh, capital flows into China or firms connected to China. There's another way and a bit of a deeper way to talk about it, right? And I think Ho peace piece uh, does a really good job in there, right? You know, for example, when we're talking about the working age population not increasing, right, and declining in some places, part of that also is that youth unemployment has, you know, spiked and at 20%, which is much higher than all the other G7 nations. And he points out that some estimates, one estimate in particular – places it above 45%. And that trade, the prices, manufacturing, GDP growth, these are all in a backslide. And that part of this goes all the way back to 2008 where China has been entering an overaccumulation accumulation crisis. You know, an over-accumulation crisis essentially is China has a closed financial system. And so if you're exporting to China, um, when you're doing business there, you're basically surrendering uh, foreign earnings, Yeah, you know, and I, I'll just quote them. Um, in its closed, financial system exporters must surrender their foreign earnings to the central bank, which creates equivalent RMB to mop up foreign, foreign currencies. This led to a rapid expansion of RMB liquidity in the economy, mostly in the form of bank loans, because the banking system is tightly controlled by the party state, which was you know part of what we saw when Ant Group tried to break into the financial system right, and start entering into exotic forms of fintech and provision of credit and so on and so forth. Um, with the state-owned or state-connected enterprises serving as fiefdoms and cash cows of elite families, the state sector enjoyed privileged access to state bank loans, which were used as fu- to fuel an investment spree, and the result was a rising employment, a temporary and localized economic boom, and a windfall for the elite. This dynamic also left behind redundant and unprofitable construction projects, empty apartments, underused airports, excessive coal plants, and steel mills. That in turn resulted in falling profits, slowing growth, and worsening indebtedness across the main sectors of the economy. And that is why earlier this year, right, we saw um, the crisis with Evergrande, right? And Evergrande was this massive a massive Chinese firm that was responsible for a huge chunk of the um, uh, construction sector, right? It's the second, it was this, at the time it was the second largest pr- property developer. But uh, a, a sort of concerns about whether, a, you know, a crisis would be sparked by it happened, you know, in September, 2021, because it turned out that the company had $305 billion in debt, right? And so what the company had done, it had used cheap credit over the past few decades to expand this real estate empire that it had, right? that it had 1,300 real estate projects across 280 cities. It had a pro- property services management arm, and they were running almost 3,000 projects in 300 cities. They had a host of other unrelated ventures or uh, ventures in unrelated industries. They're employing a quarter of a million people. And because it was unable to, to make good on the loans, the banks were then declining new loans to buyers of the incomplete projects. And then credit rating agencies were downgrading the debt of the massive firm. And then the Chinese state had to step in and try to tell major lenders that they would not be able to get uh, payments. I think Evergrande is a really good way to look at it because Evergrande was a darling, right? Evergrande was considering IPO various segments of its business, right? Um, it was trying to take public this uh, fucking uh, bottled water business that it had, uh, its tourism business, its to- its theme park business, right? It owned the most successful soccer team in China, and it had, uh, and there was also an Alibaba stake in there, um, and all of this was despite the fact, or it would seem uh, contradictory to the fact that Evergrande was success story in the in the country and that it had spent the past two decades uh, using the cheap credit to aggressively borrow to rapidly develop to sell the properties offer them at a steep discount keep the cash flowing right and so that the lion's share of this debt was just cash that it actually put down for unfinished properties but oh uh, almost two million unfinished properties right and so this sort of crisis right where you're having uh, companies that are unsustainable, that are leveraging cheap credit to uh, massively develop sectors and, mis- and, re- and allocate resources and misallocate resources into sectors where there's not enough demand. You know, People don't have enough money to buy these homes, there are not enough people buying the homes, not enough people moving into the areas to buy up the homes, and yet the homes are being built. And so you're, you're building up, you're building up, you're over-accumulating the capital in this crisis. And there were, had been attempts by the Chinese state over the past decade in anticipation of this sort of thing, right, uh, to try and curtail uh, any possible blow up. And as uh, Ho Feng talked about, uh, throughout the 2010s, the party state periodically undertook new lending in an attempt to arrest the slowdown. But many enterprises simply took advantage of easy bank loans to refinance their existing debt without adding new spending or investment to the economy. These companies would eventually become loan addicts. And as with any addiction, increasing doses were needed to generate diminishing effects. Over time, the economy lost its dynamism. Zombie enterprises were kept alive through debt alone. We have all these firms that are basically following the, the example of Evergrande, right? Easy Bank Loans... Take up debt, massively develop an infrastructure, expand your operations, refinance previous debt, but don't actually contribute back to the economy. And then eventually only sustain yourself with the loans, where the vast majority of your loans are for unfinished projects and you have no possible way of paying back um, any of the debt that you've been incurring. And this is pretty much uh, more or less what Krugman was alluding to when he said that in the 1990s there was a slowdown. In Japan, right? That you know, Japan's was also experiencing deflation. It was experiencing stagnation. But you know, as as Feng is trying to lay out, right? The problem here is that not only were there was there an understanding of this among the among uh, Chinese officials, but their efforts to censor it, uh, which. Then allowed Western commentators to kind of gloss over the growing debt bombs and the balance sheet recession that was building and the zombie enterprises that were dominating the economy and instead point to China as a success story in the post-recession environment. And I mean, and to some degree, right? You know, China did not suffer the same sort of contraction that the United States and other Western countries did after the Great Financial Recession. But the flip side of that, the reason why they didn't suffer that recession, the argument goes right, is that they were propping up or engaged in propping up a lot of zombie enterprises and sectors across the economy that were, you know, contributing significantly to what appeared to be economic growth. And so you would have, you know, one of the big pointers or uh, examples of this being China's construction sector, which we just talked about with Evergrande, but also includes, right, uh, building out uh, transportation infrastructure, right, building out roads, uh, consuming concrete, building up steel, uh, building steel or uh, making steel and building up uh, skyscrapers, right, whether it be homes or places for businesses. All of this helped keep afloat and sustain high GDP growth, but at the same time helped contribute to its environment where firms were more increasingly encouraged to just take access or grab you know easy cheap money that they wouldn't really have to pay back and that they could refinance previous debt with. So Fung points out, you know, in the west, uh, bankers and corporate executives also had incentives to not really look at the skeptical analysis because they were making piles of money off of China by luring investors into China. They were able to make money off of them whether by attempts to enter into western marketplaces to Provide goods and services for them to build up infrastructure for them. One example being ICT infrastructure built up by Huawei, right? As long as you sustain the party, as long as you don't turn on the lights, everybody keeps having a good time, right? This is more, this is a familiar recipe if you look at the tech sector in the United States. Easy access to money. Allows everyone to pretend that things aren't going on, but the other way that people pretend things aren't going on is that they realize how much money they stand to make if they can keep the inflated valuations, if they can keep the uh, frenzied energy about the future of progress and innovation going. And if they can convince other people to get in at the table because they and their friends who are getting rich and know the insider information about how there's a zombie enterprise and a zombie sector at play come to the table still and are left holding the bag when the music stops. And so this is left, you know, China in a situation where it's been clear what, you know, uh, you know, uh, Ho-Fung argues in NOR what to do. Right. And, and again, Krugman kind of alludes to this, right? Increase consumption is the argument here. The economic prescription would be to increase uh, consumption that they so that they can increase GDP growth and get uh, economy roaring again, even if they can't get productivity to increase the same way as before. Figure out ways to redistribute resources so that you can boost the household income and their consumption and its consumption, which is a part of GDP. And as Ho Feng points out in China, the household share, The the household consumption share of GDP is the lowest in the world. There have been attempts to rebalance the economy, he writes, in favor of a more sustainable growth model by reducing its reliance on exports and fixed asset investment like infrastructure construction. And this has led to some reformist redistributive policies under Hu Jintao and Wen Jiabao, government of 2003 and government of 2003 to 2013, such as the new labor contract law, the abolition of the agriculture tax, the redirection of government investment to inland rural regions. But this is still not enough because there's a complex, right? And I think we talked a little bit about this when we talked about the carbon triangle in our carbon triangle episode on China. There's a a lot of vested interest in ensuring that the spending continues or that the, the... but that the, easy cre- the credit environment continues so that there's easy access to the money without restructuring the political economy that is both um, zombifying the parts of the economy in various c- sectors, as well as contributing to carbon emissions, whether it's making cement or making steel or building out roads or adding more cars to the roads. And these things, as a result, have stood in the way of that. State enterprises enjoy the privileged access to the bank loans. Local governments enjoy the privileged you know the system that comes out of the privileged access because they get construction contracts and then they get state bank they get state bank loans that fuel those projects and the groups that might push against it workers unions peasants farmers are lack the power to do so right whether it's the union busting that goes on whether it's the disempowerment of workers that has been climbing and climbing steadily um Amid some of uh, China's uh, development projects, there's, there's, there's not enough of a foothold for some of these reforms to take place. As part of this effort to try to increase the GDP, as a result, you're left now with the situation in 2023, where there was a belief, I think, or maybe in 2022 or 2023, that she would institute this great overhaul, right? Uh, the common prosperity program that would bring China back in line with some of uh, objectives or goals towards reducing inequality, right? Um, and either increase public spending or pursue welfare state expansions. But instead, he writes, it's an assertion of the state's paternalistic ro- role Vis a vis capital and increasing its presence in the tech and real estate sectors and aligning private entrepreneurship with the broader interest of the nation. And this, I think, is, you know, we've talked a lot about how China offers a lot of valuable lessons about what can be done with antitrust. But then there is also the flip side to it, right, where the reasons they do certain things with antitrust is because their political economy with the tech sector is very different. Whereas here in the United States, they're playing around in the vests and the, you know, the, the the last vestiges of a regulatory system that might be able to corral corral them. And they're, you know, frequently undermining any ability to fund it. Uh, Neutering whatever nascent authorities or powers it might get, seizing it, indoctrinating people who enter it, hiring people who get out of it so that they can further frustrate efforts for it to, you know, to grow and oppose them. You know, while there's like a a very parasitic and dominant relationship here with tech capital and the state apparatus, um, there the idea seems to be that the political economy is such that. The state will entertain some concentrations of capital in the tech sector so long as they don't challenge the larger political economic interests that were profiting from this credit environment, but also larger efforts or larger political economy frameworks that don't threaten the state's ability to continue to intervene when it needs to. And specifically in the realm of finance. The realm and, and, and in controlling capital flows, and that we saw a lot of the antitrust actions that we would have loved to see here happen because the tech companies and their executives got a little bit of a big headed, forgot what their role was in relation to vested interests, and forgot what they what what was slotted out for them, which is that you can play a role in this easy flow of money but you cannot actually be involved in the allocation of it you cannot try to you cannot try to create a boundary where you see some of those those privileges for yourself and that if you do do that you'll be punished china's backlash to the tech companies as well as to the real estate sector can be understood as an attempt to reaffirm the supremacy of the party state over capital but also as a reaffirmation of the role of capital In the system that we are not going to embark on massive reforms that would threaten, eviscerate, immiserate, or sorry, that would threaten or eviscerate or immiserate the capitalists or the nascent capitalists or the private sector, whatever you want to call it, to avoid leftist inviting. What China's antitrust moves here—the ultimate takeaway is challenging capital to discipline it, but not to eliminate it. Right. Um, whereas our desires with antitrust here would be to eliminate it, and that they are a few steps ahead of us in terms of the disciplining effort. There, there are other structures in play that are concerning in terms of how much they're willing to accommodate and how important they think these companies and firms are to the larger system. Partly because of desperation, partly because of their own whatever political power and coalitions have developed behind them. In alignment with them, right, and because of the vested interests in play, and also because of institutions and intersections of these interst- institutions, where they're all going to protect each other in one way or another, and 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 so Ho whole kind of closes out by saying, "Look, you know, the reforms might be clear, but we've just outlined why by poli- the political economy of is uh, is such that they're not going to embark on them." And why instead China is much more likely to uh, try to figure out ways to um, contain the situation and brace itself for social and political repercussions, right? To focus on security, to focus on social control, to focus on, you know, corralling and consolidating elite opinion, right? And, and political coalitions behind them, and to try to, you know, figure out how to ride out this wave without giving up any of the ascendance that it's had geopolitically right um and i think you know coming away from this the conclusion should be right this focus on a hand a state that's hands-on and not interventionalist that's Working with capital, but not working to emiserate capital. That's using anti-corruption as a way to shore up and consolidate political elites. Uh, That's investing in a surveillance state. That's leaning towards nationalism. That's struggling with figuring out how to legitimize the state. Uh, That's trying to figure out how to make sure that's having debates about the nature of its economic growth, right? I mean, these are things that we see in the United States as well. Like These are all trends that are present in the United States to different degrees and for different reasons that we can talk about, but paints a picture of a China that is undergoing a similar crisis to us. Thanks in no small part to the great financial crisis of 2008, to the dominant political elites and coalitions that are present in the country, and the refusal to embark on social spending programs Um or you even invest in pub- in the public sector in a way that might be able to sustain and provide for households without this fanatic focus on gdp P- 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 P-
0: Man, uh, I'm 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 sitting in the back of the class. I'm just watching <laughs> Professor Ed do his do his shit. I got my feet propped up, and i'm 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 just soaking up the knowledge right now. This, that was fantastic. <laughs> um, but yeah, all right, so let me let me go off on that then. I mean, I think you just you laid out everything so clearly and like the you know, what are the kind of big conditions here? And I think we can kind of wrap up the episode by looking more specifically at some at the the kind of tech. Uh, the crackdown of the tech sector. But I think that 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 um, context there is really, really crucial, where it was never about much as we hoped it was when when these things started happening like three years ago, when we started seeing China really take a heavy hand, um, a really interventionist uh, hand with the tech sector there. We were, you know, we hoped that, is this it right? Like, are, are they actually going to like, really bring, you know, these massive tech companies to heal, um in a, in a major way and actually go about um, eliminating capital's control over these technologies. But that's, as you just laid out. Yeah, that's not what happened. It was never the interest of the state to do that, um, because again, like I think there are so many actual similarities between uh, the the U.S. and China in terms of their of econ- uh, their economies here, their macroeconomic approaches. In some ways, though, they are also like the bizarro inverse version of each other. Um, but like to accomplish ultimately the same goals, like you know when we're talking about. Uh, uh, you know Ho Fong Hung talking about that. Increasingly, the the state's presence in the tech and real estate sector is to align private entrepreneurship with the broader interest of the nation. That's that could be like that's that could be Xi or that could be Biden. You know, because like that's exactly what the IRA, the Inflation Reduction Act, is all about trying to do, which is like align the interest of private entrepreneurship with the interest of a green transition or a stronger economy um, or, you know, whatever it might be. Right. Um, But they're doing it in different ways. And it's like, who's disciplining who? Um, So, you know, you just laid out how the, 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 what the state, what the Chinese state is actually doing here is disciplining capital saying, get back in line. Don't forget who you are and where you stand in this system. You know, and Jack Ma was really like the, the 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 starting gun for this back in you know three years ago, because he was among the loudest and most brazen uh, of the big tech billionaire CEOs, essentially saying, "I don't need the state. I'm outside of the state. Um, you know, I'm more powerful." And then the state said, "Huh? What?" <laughs> I, I I can't hear you from that holding cell beneath the ocean that we <laughs> put you in for three months. <laughs> Political prisoners say what? Yeah. Um, and, and so, whereas I think in the U.S. we see the inverse happen, where it's ca- capital is routinely the one disciplining the state, right? Like, um, but it's ultimately you know. Uh, It's ultimately what side of that relationship between the state and capital are you on, who's disciplining whom, but it's never about like one eliminating the other, right? It's like who has the upper hand over the other so that we can work together together to achieve what we all ultimately want which is like for the state it's a strong consolidated power over and a, a, a growing economy and for capital it's cheap credit and protections in the market uh, and opportunities for for their own growth and expansion right i think it's it's interesting to to walk through the you know where we're at with um, the the Chinese state's uh, crackdown on the tech sector um, in terms of like how they have enacted some antitrust uh, interventions and regulations and policies that I would fucking love to see. We've been clamoring, hoping just to see anything like that uh, in the U.S. or other similar contexts in the in the West, right? Like the closest we have is some like really kind of frail attempts by the uh, by europe you know or some like fines some slap on the wrist fines um like you know uh to with with these companies nothing major or structural in terms of intervening in how they operate or how they're organized um and so it, as we walk through this it's interesting i think it, it'll be all, also interesting to reflect on like a lot of this is what we wish would happen in the U S but we wish it would happen for different reasons, right? Like to achieve different goals, um, that the, the tools are being used, but they're not being used to build the stuff that we want to build. Um, and so I think that's a, there's a bit of nuance there. Um, but I think it's really important that like the, you know, the same, uh, means can lead to different ends, um, and so we we can't confuse or or conflate means and ends with each other. And so let, I think let's go through this Bloomberg piece, um, uh, and and walk through the uh, the the points they've got about where we're at right now with what comes next with uh, the the China's um, crackdown on the tech sector and what what the evidence is that it's it's easing up that the Chinese state is kind of loosening the the grip that they have over the tech sector, kind of basically being like, all right, we've we've brought you to Hill um, in a way that we wanted to. So one, the the Bloomberg piece, you know, the first point starts with what what's the evidence for an easing of these regulations? And so, you know, back in July, the Chinese state um, regulators imposed a $1 billion fine on Jack Ma's ant group. Um, and, and, that, and that officially ended the investigation that's been going on for three years now. From you know o- into the Ant Group, um, into this big giant financial technology um, company that is like has a massive amount of control over payment and processing and other financial activities in people's everyday lives in China. Um, but this is like. You know that one billion dollar fine is officially ending the investigation. Um, you know the the uh, regulators have also given a their blessing to Ant's business model, um, albeit a, a significantly downsized one um, that they that they enforced. And you know they're. Thus, kind of, as the Bloomberg piece writes, you know, broadcasting the government's intention to enlist the tech industry and in its broader ambition to counter U.S. efforts to hamper its own development by blocking access to state-of-the-art U.S. technology. And so here, some of this, like, Easing up of the uh, of the crackdown on the tech sector is more so, I think, also read as like a a drafting or an enrolling the tech sector into the the economic cold war um, and the the technology cold war um, that is very much you know uh, booming right now between the U.S. and China, and so easing up on easing up on um, the grip that they have over these. Uh, technology companies, but also keeping them really close, and again, putting that guiding hand on their back to say your 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 role here is to serve the nation's interest, and the nation's interest are the state's interest, are the party's interest, right? Um, so we we can see that kind of happening uh, in terms of the easing up, and and we can also see you know some of really important decision-making bodies in the Chinese state calling for uh, a revival of the private sector, um, which immediately drew endorsements from Ten Cents billionaire co-founder Pony Ma uh, and and a party peer, uh, you know, and uh, Li Jun, right, uh, a peer. And so I think it, it remains to be seen, like, what kind of concrete policies they're going to be in terms of, like, catalyzing this growth and expansion and and new direction for the tech sphere, um, for the tech sector in China. But uh, the uh, regulators have met with global investors. They're hearing out, you know, the concerns of these investors. They want to boost confidence in China's market and as a way to kind of uh, help spur some economic recovery by bringing in outside investors right so again it's like it's an economic recovery with uh that is looking for financial solutions not welfare solutions not redistributive solutions but like where can we get more money can we get uh investors from else from foreign investors to come in and give us you know loans and money So it's, it's that like that loan addiction that Ho Fung Hung was talking about as well that cheap credit addiction it's like well if it can't come from the state banks uh can it can can it be uh, pouring in through um foreign investors but that also is really tricky because the biden government has been putting a lot of restrictions on investment um, american investment into chinese firms and chinese markets right and so a lot of like american venture capitalists for example who would love to invest uh into um you know these uh the chinese tech sector Have restrictions on doing so, or if they or if they do so, then they need to do so through multiple shell companies uh, and 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 kind of launder it through um, you know stacks of LLCs and so on in order to do it right. Um, Which also maybe is that? Hold on, is that is that is that Masayoshi Son's music (laughs) I hear playing? Um, so, you know, the, I, I know, you know, Masa uh, is is already has a huge amount of investment in, you know, Alibaba and, and other um, Chinese uh, tech companies. I mean, it is Chinese tech sector that is propping up <laughs> SoftBank's uh, investments. Um, the fact that like Alibaba is such a huge grow, uh, success and all of that. So, but that might be, you know, attracting more of that that foreign um Capital, the Chinese state has also eased up some of its regulations, like resuming uh, issuing video game licenses to Tencent and NetEase, right? Another uh, big online tech giant, um, after they had uh, frozen the issuance of video game licenses, right? So, like, uh, which is really interesting. And part of this as well, like finding multiple ways to put the squeeze on these companies. Oh, Tencent, you're, you uh, you know these video games are a massive part of your your revenue and your business uh, well we're gonna actually freeze the issuance of licenses right like like finding kind of weird and uh, ways to put these freezes and and these um, these constraints on these companies but those are easing up now same with like um, uh, constri- uh, restrictions they put on Didi, which is one of the big um, ride-hailing apps in China, um, which they uh, banned uh, the app from the the, the the App Store in 2021 after it did a, a, a listing on the New York Stock Exchange without permission from Beijing. So that was another, like, these companies are getting a too big of a head on themselves. They're doing stuff without getting approval or going through the proper state channels, um, and so we got to you know they they went in hard and fast on that. To a, you know it wasn't a, a a regulatory inquiry or anything like that. It was just a hard and fast uh, intervention restriction. Um, freezing on, you know, uh, banning, like all of that until they felt like they had these companies sufficiently under control. And I think the biggest one, though, was the breakup of Alibaba, right? I mean, Alibaba is one of the biggest companies in the world, Um, a gigantic tech company, which, you know, to call it China's Amazon does not do justice to Alibaba in terms of like its size and in terms of the um, all of the different stuff that it had under uh, has under its uh, umbrella. I mean, you know, Ant Financial, Ant Group, spun out of Alibaba, you know, Alipay, right? So payment processing on top of e-commerce, on top of a huge cloud computing company, you know, the logistics. So a lot of Amazon-like stuff, but also a lot of other stuff that Amazon is not into. Um, but Alibaba has been broken up into six separate, mostly independent companies. Um, and uh, with the a big part of it was... Um, relinquishing control of its $11 billion cloud business, um, which was once a a kind of core pillar of Alibaba. And so this split... Is a, is a massive antitrust action, right? Like, I mean, we can't imagine anything. It's hard to imagine something like that happening to Amazon, much as Lena Khan would love to do so. It's not that there's not the will or the imagination um, to do it in the regulators uh, at the in the U.S., um, but uh, there there there's it's just so hard to imagine something like that happening, and yet it has you know China has done it, right? China broke up. Um, Alibaba, but again, I, I do question like was this a breaking up for the good of the economy or for the good of uh, consumers or anything like that for the good of some future vision of what a, of what technology should or could be doing? All evidence kind of points to no, right? like I think it's more that it's a way of, Uh, The state acting really hard and fast against companies that had grown um, too big for their britches, had been challenging and stepping outside of the state's authority. Um, And this is a way of, one, putting some heads on a pike, but two, uh, being able to have much stronger control over these companies to ensure that they follow party interest and that they don't upset all of that. That that existing political economy that you outlined, Ed, where you have a lot of vested interests that have been profiting very heavily from that existing political economy, um, and so it's more about securing those profits um, rather than doing something that seems more about
2: the the public good, right? Yeah, yeah. I mean, and I think I think that's absolutely fair, and I think that. You know, then that's that requires that, you know, going forward as we look at, you know, trying to also understand more of the mechanisms or the institutions and the legal authorities they have there that we don't have here. How do we do it so that we don't replicate this issue? Uh, you build out infrastructure, you build out legal authority, you're able to discipline them, but because of how important they are to the economy, which they are still, they figure out a way to leverage those tools to then create a sort of agreement where the state assumes even more pat, you know, paternal role in exchange for being empowered, right. Or in, in exchange for being allowed to, to, to let its regulatory wings fly. I think that's the, you know, here it's like, how do we ensure that like, you know, the new Brandeis movement, how do we ensure like the anti, um, you know, the revisionists for antitrust don't end up, um, Figuring out a way to convince people to swallow some pill and and, and enforce a compromise where um, we're getting public-private partnerships, right? Um, and, and kind of, kind of similar to I think like what part of the debate it feels like over biogenomics is in some dimension, right? Are we creating infrastructures and institutions that will allow us to permanently realign politics and policy? and the political economy of this country and the ability to have sustainable growth, and equitable growth, and inclusive growth or are we just figuring out a way to subsidize, you know, and and de-risk private uh, industries investments into things that it should be doing on its dollar and its dime. I think that this is like, you know, of course this is going to be something that pops up constantly, but especially in the next few years as the stakes get much more desperate and as like, you know, the amount of money that needs to get spent increases because we spent that we spent that previous year not doing anything. And we have to get over the inertia of these firms and we have to rally more resources to contain them, right? And we have to spend more money convincing people and organizing people and building co- these coalitions, right? And the institutions and rolling back the legal damage that's been done with precedent. I don't know. Um, One thing I'm definitely, I would wish, you know, I mean, I wish I knew Mandarin. I don't, but I'd also be very interested in, you know, I think there's a lot of analysis about what the larger economic infrastructures are, but also like what role, if any, can be, is there any, is there room for comparison with like legal structures and court precedents and regulatory authorities being built up, built down, or is the system, I think, radically you're divergent on that sense. And the authorities are just, the authorities just coming, you know, top down at each level. And there's no need to like spend years experimenting, losing, winning, losing, winning. I mean, I mean, partly because it's authoritarian, you probably don't, you don't have to deal with that uh, element. So there's probably not that, but I don't know. There's, yeah, there's like, it, it's interesting as we talked about, cause it's like, yeah, you know, at the beginning of this in three years ago, we were interested and excited to see where it goes. And now still like having, they've done some things, which, are good or will be a net good in the sense of it's just good for tech capitalists to not be allowed to have a smoke filled room to themselves. Right. But there is a larger question of, to what end?
0: Absolutely. Absolutely. I mean, there's so much more we can get into. I mean, to that what end, right? Like the Bloomberg piece points out that like, you know, all, all of these companies as well, Tencent, uh, Baidu, you know, Alibaba, all of them have announced huge efforts to create AI models to rival or surpass OpenAI and ChatGPT. And this is also you know, with the support of these of the Chinese state, right? Be- this is again that's that part of that AI arms race. Um, you know, and the the state has also instituted some, re- in addition to the antitrust rules around you know breaking people up, restructuring business models. They've also instituted some you know market constraints as well. Um, so any attempts to like hoard wealth by these tech companies or sabotage rivals, which is you know classic. Um, strategy by tech companies, you know, undercutting prices, coercing merchants into exclusive deals—all of that remains off limits. All of that will be strictly enforced and overseen. You know, it's again, it's another way for the the state to um, discipline capital, maintain hard um, grips over the market. But as as we were saying, like to what end? Right, I'm not sure it's to the end of benefiting consumers um or benefiting competition amongst you know smaller tech companies or that it's more about like ins instilling. Um, a discipline of capital that you need to be contributing to um, the state's interest, the party's interest, um, and that there'll be none of this infighting, none of this empire building, none of that bullshit. Um, you stay in your lane, right? Uh, and, and we'll and we'll tell you what lane that is, and then you can grow and expand and do everything you want in your lane. You know that really seems to be the vibe to me with a lot of this. But I think I'm going to end us there. We have to get run. Thank you, everybody, for listening. Um, obviously, tons more for us to talk about on this topic. So, but this is a perennial return for TMK. Um, so we, uh, we'll 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 be back with more on it. Um, China's economy, finance, uh, and tech sector. Um, Tune for in sure. next time for
2: China Watch.
0: <laughs> um, and with the with the rest of us. With the rest of us at the Brookings Institution, uh, <laughs> we, we, thank you, no,
2: <laughs> we thank you for listening to TMK. the TMK. School of Advanced International Studies.
0: Oh, that's right. That's right. Uh, the Harvard Kennedy School. Uh, <laughs> IOP. <laughs> <laughs> uh, all right. Find us on patreon.com slash thismachinekills for additional premium episodes every single week. And uh, we'll catch you next time. Later.
2: Adios. Adios.